Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Apostolic Coup d'Etat, or how the Quorum of Twelve Apostles, in a breathtaking power grab, assumed absolute and complete control of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Today's situation in the LDS Church is known to all Mormons. The power structure is, at the top we have a First Presidency, the President of the Church and his two counselors. Beneath them is the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Beneath them is the Quorum of the Seventy and other quorums of the 70, and then there's some middle-level management with area authorities and area 70s, and then we get down to the local level with stake presidents and bishops. But something is odd in this situation, and the thing that's odd is that even though we have a quorum of 12 apostles, yet we don't have just 12 apostles, we have 15 apostles, because the members of the First Presidency are also apostles. Although most members of the church are aware of this fact, it is not very often commented on. But the fact that we have 15 apostles at the head of the church is a strange element in church administration that points to the power grab the apostles have conducted for authority over the entire church that began in 1844. Over the next 150 years, the apostles took over or got rid of any competing power structures to emerge today as the sole authorities in the LDS Church. Any other authorities are under their administration and must do as they direct. This podcast will give a brief overview of the different power grabs the apostles did in order to arrive at their position today of absolute supremacy. We will look at the way the Quorum of Twelve took over the First Presidency, the way the Quorum of Twelve took over the First Quorum of Seventy, Yes, the Quorum of Twelve wasn't always over the Quorum of the Seventy. We'll look at the way the Quorum of the Twelve did away with the Church Patriarch, which, in Joseph Smith's day, was the highest office in the Church, even higher than that of Church President. And we'll also look at the way the Twelve Apostles took over all the stakes of the Church. Because, believe it or not, in the original Church that Joseph Smith organized, pursuant to the Revelations, Joseph Smith received, the Quorum of Twelve Apostles had no authority over stake presidents. In fact, they had no authority in any of the stakes of Zion. They were purely a missionary force that had power only where stakes of Zion were not organized. In other words, they had power in the mission field only. The Quorum of Twelve Apostles was not organized until 1835, five years after the church itself was organized in 1830. The First Presidency itself had been organized several years before that, so obviously the First Presidency was not composed of apostles. The apostles themselves were not chosen by the First Presidency. If you remember your history, the apostles were chosen by the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. So, going with the basic premise that a lesser power cannot select and ordain a greater power, it would appear that in 1835, the three witnesses who chose and ordained the first twelve apostles were considered to be greater in authority than the apostles. One year later, in January of 1836, in the almost completed Kirtland Temple, prior to the temple dedication, which would happen Several months later, all the different church offices and quorums were anointed on January 21st of that year, 1836, in the Kirtland Temple. Guess where the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was in this list of eight? If you guess number one, you're wrong. If you guess two, 
you're wrong. If you guess three, four, or five, you're wrong, wrong, and wrong. The Quorum of Twelve Apostles was sixth in the list of quorums and officers anointed January 1836 in the Kirtland Temple. We will return to that list of eight later in this podcast. When Joseph Smith died unexpectedly in June of 1844, there was immediately a succession crisis. Who would now lead the church? The problem when Joseph Smith died was not that he had left no successor to the church. The problem was that he had left an overabundance of successors to leadership in the church. In other words, there were multiple people and multiple quorums who could, based upon the revelations and statements of Joseph Smith, claim leadership of the church. And this is what led to the succession crisis. The first person we're going to talk about who had a good claim to taking over leadership of the church was Sidney Rigdon. Sidney Rigdon was the only remaining counselor in the first presidency. Joseph Smith, being the president, had just died, and the other counselor, William Law, had been excommunicated by Joseph Smith only a couple of months before Joseph Smith died. So only Sidney Rigdon remained. But, some might ask, isn't it a fact that when the president dies, the two counselors thereafter lose any ability to have any power or control in the church? No, that's not a fact. At least, it wasn't a fact back in Joseph Smith's day. In 1834, Joseph Smith himself established that his first counselor would preside in his absence. That can be found in History of the Church, Volume 2, page 51, that the first counselor would preside in his absence. Sidney Rigdon was the first counselor, and you can't get much more absent than Joseph Smith was after he was assassinated. Therefore, there was a basis for Sidney Rigdon to preside in the absence of Joseph Smith. His claim to being the leader of the church was much stronger than you might know if you only attended Sunday school. Nowhere did Joseph Smith ever foreclose the idea that a counselor in the first presidency could succeed him upon his death. In contradiction to this idea, some might point to another entry in the history of the church. Now, the history of the church is a six-volume work published after Joseph Smith's death and after the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles had assumed leadership of the church. Anything that was published in the history of the church had to get the approval of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and it appears that not only did it get their approval in many instances it was changed words were added words were omitted in order to make it justify the leadership claims of the quorum of the twelve apostles so going back to the history of the church there is such a denial in the officially published history of the church these are in the published minutes of an eighteen thirty six meeting of the first presidency and the quorum of the twelve in the history of the church it reads quote also the twelve are not subject to any other than the first presidency i e myself said the prophet that would be joseph smith i.e. myself, said Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Frederick G. Williams, who are now my counselors, and where I am not, there is no first presidency over the twelve. Unquote. If Joseph Smith had actually said this, the statement would have removed the possibility that a senior counselor, i.e. Sidney Rigdon, could have succeeded him at his death. But wait a second. There's tomfoolery going on. The last part of this quote is not in the original minutes of Joseph Smith's statement. In other words, the actual minutes from the 1836 meeting state, also, these are the words of Joseph Smith, also the twelve are not subject to any other than the first presidency, i.e. myself, said the prophet Sidney Rigdon and Frederick G. Williams, period. The words after that 
which are now in the official history of the church, who are now my counselors, and where I am not, there is no first presidency over the twelve, were added later to the official version. They are not in the original minutes. They were added later, and presumably they were added in order to take away any claim that Sidney Rigdon might have still had in the hearts of the Latter-day Saints after he lost the election for who it should be who would lead the church in 1844 after Joseph Smith died. Aside from this altered document, there is no record that Joseph Smith ever nullified the right of presidential succession by the senior counselor in the first presidency. This can be found in D. Michael Quinn's Mormon Hierarchy, Origins of Power, page 161. Additionally, the History of the Church, volume 6, pages 592 to 93, quotes Joseph Smith on the eve of his assassination in Carthage jail as expressing gratitude that Sidney Rigdon would not lead the church. Here's the quote from the history. During the day, Hiram encouraged Joseph to think that the Lord, for his church's sake, would release him from prison. Joseph replied, Could my brother Hiram but be liberated, it would not matter so much about me. Poor Rigdon, I am glad he has gone to Pittsburgh out of the way. Were he to preside, he would lead the church to destruction in less than five years. This is another statement put into the mouth of Joseph Smith right before he dies, which is designed to delegitimize Sidney Rigdon's claim to leadership in the church. There are no original minutes of this meeting. This is simply a conversation that is alleged to have occurred in Carthage jail. There are no minutes of a meeting to compare with what is in the history of the church as there are for the prior altered document. But D. Michael Quinn states this is certainly a retrospective Edition. So what we have are documents being altered in order to delegitimize Sidney Rigdon, who was the person who may have had the strongest claim to preside over the church. We will see this pattern again and again and again with the history of the church, which is printed and published under the authority of the Twelve Apostles, adding statements, taking statements away, altering statements in order to delegitimize others with leadership claims and buttress their own leadership claims. It reminds me of the quote from Ben Franklin, History is written by the winners as an excuse for hanging the losers. Because we're talking about the first presidency right now, we're going to continue this thread of thought up to the present day and go to the re-establishing and the reorganizing of the first presidency, which occurred in December of 1840. Seven. Bear in mind that Brigham Young was not elected to be president of the church. Rather, he put forward the idea that in the absence of the first presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles should now lead the church as a quorum. But three and a half years later, Brigham Young got it into his head that he wanted to reorganize the first presidency with himself as the new president of the church. As you will recall, in 1847, Brigham Young led the vanguard expedition of the saints to the Salt Lake Valley, and then at the end of the summer, he came back to join the saints once again in winter's quarters. Once he was there in October, he began to bring up this idea to the other apostles. Wilfred Woodruff, himself an apostle, recorded his uneasiness about Brigham Young's suggestion. He wrote, quote, I thought it would require a revelation to change the order of that quorum of the twelve. Now today we're so used to the quorum of the twelve apostles choosing the first presidency after the president dies, this may seem an unusual idea to us. This was a completely new idea that Brigham Young was proposing. There is nothing in the revelations that gives the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles authority to create 
a first presidency. This is why Wilfred Woodruff thought it would require a revelation to change the order of the Quorum of the Twelve. Brigham Young wanted the Twelve to appoint an apostle, i.e. himself, to be an independent president of the church with two counselors, but there was no authorization in Joseph Smith's teachings or revelations for this administrative act. In Wilfred Woodruff's view, the Twelve had no authority to organize a separate first presidency without a new revelation, presumably written and canonized. Other apostles shared Wilfred Woodruff's misgivings. So in other words, Brigham Young is getting a lot of pushback from the apostles. Wilfred Woodruff recorded on 15th November 1847, I returned to Winter's Quarters with Brother Potter and met in council with the Twelve. Orson Pratt introduced the subject of the standing and rights of the President and also of the quorum. Orson Pratt was followed by George Albert Smith, Wilfred Woodruff, and Amasa Lyman. It is apparent that here or elsewhere Orson Pratt was challenging Brigham Young's and the Twelve's ability to reconstitute the First Presidency, because Young later said that Orson Pratt led the opposition to his reconstituting the First Presidency. A man named T.B.H. Stenhouse, who was a former confidant and associate of Brigham Young and others of the hierarchy, accurately identified Wilfred Woodruff and Orson Pratt as opposing the organization of the First Presidency. Also in opposition were Apostles John Taylor and Parley P. Pratt, who were not present for the consultations. Minutes of quorum meetings show that George A. Smith was the fifth dissenting apostle. So here comes Brigham Young back to winner's quarters with this great idea about reconstituting the first presidency and he's getting major league pushback from five members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. You will note that Brigham Young first brought up this idea in October of 1847 and had to keep bringing it up and bringing it up in repeated meetings with the Quorum of the Twelve until December when finally he was apparently able to wear resistance down to the point that he got the apostles to agree with his plan, in spite of the fact that there apparently was no revelation ever given as Wilfred Woodruff thought there should be. On November 30th, 1847, at another of these meetings, Orson Pratt focused on how much autonomy Brigham Young would have in a first presidency. Now this is interesting when you consider Orson Pratt's position. Orson Pratt is a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. They have the leadership over the church. And what Orson Pratt is saying is, how is it that we can have a Quorum of Twelve and in order for us to make a decision, we have to have a majority, which means seven members have to vote one way in order for us to have a majority and make a decision. But out of this Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, we're going to pick three apostles who are going to now become a super quorum. And these three apostles can have authority over us and can overturn any decision that we make. That didn't make sense to Orson Pratt. And when you think about it, he had a good point. Could the presidency of three apostles set aside the will of the rest of the apostles? Now, this was not the first time that Orson Pratt butted heads with Brigham Young. Ultimately, in this case, he would lose in the sense that Brigham Young would have his way and reorganize the first presidency on December 5th of 1847. However, as the years went by, Orson Pratt would repeatedly butt heads with Brigham Young over issues of doctrine, over issues of Adam God, over issues of whether God is a progressing being. And ultimately, it was Orson Pratt's position that became adopted by the church. But Orson Pratt had to pay a price for this and the basic price he had to pay was that he never became president of the church. Orson Pratt was in line to become president of the church. He was the next apostle in line after Brigham Young when Brigham Young died in 1877. You will recall that when the apostles were originally organized in 1835, they were organized according to 
their age brigham young was a few months older than orson pratt and therefore he became the president but in eighteen seventy five two years before brigham young died brigham young reorganized the quorum of the twelve apostles in order to avoid having orson pratt become the next president and instead of making seniority in the quorum of the twelve apostles by age he changed it and added the condition that it was determined on the basis of the length of time of continuous service in the quorum of the twelve this made it so orson pratt was no longer next in line because in eighteen forty two orson pratt had left the church for a short period of time mainly because when he got back from england his wife sarah told him that while he'd been gone joseph smith was hitting on her he didn't take this too well he ended up leaving the church briefly was reconciled to joseph smith before joseph smith's death but this period of time removed his continuous period of service pushed him back and john taylor then became the next in line to become president of the church and indeed john taylor became president of the church when brigham young died orson pratt would continue to live for several years beyond that but only as an apostle and never became president of the church that was the prize orson pratt had to pay for butting heads with brigham young at this december fifth eighteen forty seven meeting in winner's quarters there is no contemporaneous record of any miracle happening however years later orson hyde and brigham young began talking about a miracle that had happened that there was a divine manifestation in april conference eighteen sixty so this is thirteen years later brigham young claimed at orson hyde's the power came upon us a shock that alarmed the neighborhood this is where the story comes from that there was an earthquake that signaled the divine approval of the decision that the apostles made in order to reconstitute the first presidency six months later Orson Hyde expanded on what Brigham Young had said. This is October 1860 General Conference. He affirmed that the apostles organized the first presidency because the voice of God declared, quote, Let my servant Brigham step forth and receive the full power of the presiding priesthood in my church and kingdom. So in 1860 now, Orson Hyde says the voice of God was heard by the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and the voice of God said, let my servant Brigham step forth and receive the full power of the presiding priesthood in my church and kingdom, and associated with this was an earthquake. By contrast, Wilford Woodruff later said he did not remember any particular manifestations at the time of the organization of the presidency. His diary mentions nothing unusual about the December 5, 1847 meeting, and the minutes of the meeting mention nothing extraordinary. This appears to be a miracle that was seen to be needed to confirm that God approved of this step that was taken to reorganize the first presidency and this miracle was created later and was then inserted back into the narrative this is how the story gets told today this is from an august enzyme magazine from two thousand and two the article is titled pushing on to zion this part of the article is titled reestablishing a first presidency december eighteen forty seven here is how the church portrays what happened today earlier on fifth december nine of the twelve had met at elder hyde's home now remember this is in winter's quarters elder hyde later reported the article does not say how much later but we know it was from october of 1860 it was in fact 13 years later elder hyde later reported the voice of god came from on high and spake to the council saying let my servant brigham step forth and receive the full power of the presiding priesthood in my church and kingdom he affirmed this was the voice of the almighty unto us i am one that was present and did hear and feel the voice from heaven 
and we were filled with the power of God. Unquote. It was moved, I'm continuing to quote from the article, from the enzyme, it was moved and approved that President Brigham Young be sustained as president of the church. They approved his choice of counselors, elders Heber C. Kimball and Willard Richards. Outside, people came to the Hyde's door and knocked, worried, because they felt houses shake and the ground tremble and thought there had been an earthquake. It was the Lord speaking to his leaders, Elder Hyde assured them. Let me read that part again. Outside, people came to the Hyde's door and knocked, worried, because they felt houses shake and the ground tremble and thought there had been an earthquake. Why did they go to Orson Hyde's door? That seems like a very, very specific epicenter for an earthquake. But apparently, according to this story, everybody feels the earthquake and everybody knows it's coming from Elder Hyde's house. But Elder Hyde assured them that was the Lord speaking to his leaders, and apparently that satisfied their question. I'm not going to read this whole article, but I have to go on to the next line because it's very interesting in what it admits. At the December 1847 conference, now this is the conference of the church. This is after the apostles have been persuaded by Brigham Young to support him in his idea about reconstituting the first presidency. Now it's put before the general conference in winter's quarters. Going on with the article, at the December 1847 conference, without saying anything about the revelation, the twelve put before the people the proposal that the first presidency be reestablished, consisting of Elders Young, Kimball, and Richards. That is fascinating to me, that even in this article in the Ensign from August of 2002, it admits that at the general conference, the twelve put before the people the proposal that the first presidency be reorganized, but they don't say anything about the revelation. What revelation? The revelation that 13 years later, Elder Hyde said they received when the voice of God was heard. Think about this. You're the quorum of the twelve apostles. You've received a revelation from God. You've heard his voice commanding that Brigham Young become the president of the church and the first presidency be reorganized. And yet, later the same month, when you present this proposal to the general conference of the church, you don't say anything about the revelation. This also suggests that the revelation that Elder Hyde says was received was not received at the time. Otherwise, they would have mentioned it to the church. Instead, it's a later creation that Elder Hyde comes up with 13 years later and first mentions in October of 1860 and then says, oh, this happened because they need a miracle. This is a very, very significant change in church administration and as such, it requires a miracle. And it appears that in retrospect, they also thought that maybe a revelation would be a good idea and so they produced a revelation retroactively saying, that the voice of God came from on high and said, let Brigham Young be the president of the church. Again, at the time, and according to Wilford Woodruff, no revelation was received as was thought proper by him, only a general feeling that this was the right thing to do. President Gordon B. Hinckley in 2005 gave a talk titled The Quorum of the First Presidency in which he talked about the government of the church and the leadership structure. This is in the December 2005 issue of The Enzyme. He starts off by saying, The place of the president of the church and that of the quorum of the first presidency in having responsibility for the entire church in all the world is clearly set forth in these revelations recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now the problem is, is that they are not clearly set forth in the revelations recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants. In fact, the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants actually say something 
quite different, but going on with President Hinckley. At the same time, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles is spoken of as being equal in authority and power to the three presidents previously mentioned, DNC 107.24. The Seventy, likewise, form a quorum equal in authority to that of the Twelve Special Witnesses or Apostles just named. Now, Gordon B. Hinckley is right when he says that Section 107 states the different quorums are equal in power and authority. But he is about to controvert that statement from the scriptures by a quote from Joseph F. Smith, which says, Yes, DNC 107 says they're equal in power and authority, but they really aren't. In other words, the quorum of the Twelve is only equal with the First Presidency when the First Presidency ceases to exist, which is not really equality at all. If we read the actual revelation itself, we can see that Joseph Smith had something very different in mind than a simple top-down hierarchy as we have today. What Joseph Smith is doing here in section 107 is creating different quorums in the church, all of whom are equal in authority and power to each other. In fact, as we go further into section 107, we'll find that the idea was that if one of the quorums started making decisions or coming up with ideas that were completely out of harmony with the will of the Lord, then all the other quorums would sit in judgment upon them. They would be brought before a common council of the church, and therefore any erring quorum could be brought back in line by the other councils. This was seen by Joseph Smith as a way to have a balance of power. What Joseph Smith sets forth in section 107 is not a hierarchy. It is more a balance of power. The other critical thing that's missing from Doctrine and Covenants 107 is the idea that any quorum can reconstitute another quorum. Specifically, nothing in section 107 says that the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles has the power to reconstitute the First Presidency, as they ended up doing in 1847, which is one of the reasons that there was so much pushback from the other apostles. Gordon B. Hinckley goes on to ask this question. The question arises, how can they be equal in authority? Speaking to this question, President Joseph F. Smith taught, I want here to correct an impression that has grown up to some extent among the people, and that is that the twelve apostles possess equal authority with the first presidency in the church. Now that is what the revelation says. And notice that President Joseph F. Smith is the president of the church. He's also the senior apostle in the church by this time. And what President Joseph F. Smith is going to do now is he is going to actually contradict Doctrine and Covenants 107. Once again he says, I want here to correct an impression that has grown up to some extent among the people. So people are asking this question. There are still people around at the turn of the 20th century who were alive when Joseph Smith walked the earth, who know the revelations, and still, for some reason, believe that the twelve apostles possessed equal authority with the first presidency in the church. In other words, they believe the revelation. Here's what President Joseph F. Smith says. Remember, again, he's being quoted by Gordon B. Hinckley. This is correct when there is no other presidency but the twelve apostles. But so long as there are three presiding elders who possess the presiding authority in the church, the authority of the twelve apostles is not equal to theirs. If it were so, there would be two equal authorities and two equal quorums in the priesthood running parallel, and that could not be because there must be a head. Unquote. So once again, the ruling apostle in the church, President Joseph F. Smith in 1906, says that there is an issue that has grown up to some extent among the people 
that the twelve apostles possess equal authority with the first presidency in the church. And now Joseph F. Smith says that's correct when there is no other presidency but the twelve apostles. But so long as you've got the three presiding elders who possess the presiding authority in the church, the authority of the twelve apostles is not equal to theirs. Joseph S. Smith just contradicted Doctrine and Covenants 107, because in his mind there must be a hierarchy. We must by this time, 1906, have the first presidency, who's over the Quorum of the Twelve, who's over the entire church. There has to be a hierarchy. This is not what Joseph Smith contemplates in section 107 as I mentioned before. And also notice that Joseph F. Smith does not quote to any revelation. He certainly doesn't quote to Doctrine and Covenants section 107 in support of his position. All he does is make the conclusory statement that there must be a head, and if we had two equal authorities and two equal quorums in the priesthood running parallel, there would not be a head, so that can't be what it means. So from this quote from Joseph F. Smith, we find out that it took until 1906 for an answer to come to this question, and this answer actually denies the language of the revelation itself. Now we're going to look more in depth at the revelation here. This is section 107. It was given in 1835 after the selection of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles by the three witnesses. Once again, nowhere does it say that one quorum is above the other, rather that all are equal. Joseph Smith appears to contemplate a balance of power. Verse 22 talks about the calling of the first presidency. Verse 23 talks about the twelve apostles, also known as the traveling high council, that they form a quorum equal in authority and power to the three presidents previously mentioned. See, it says equal in authority and power. It doesn't say anything about they're only equal when there are not three presiding high priests in the first presidency. Verse 25, the 70 are also called to preach the gospel, and they form a quorum equal in authority to that of the 12 special witnesses or apostles just named. Nothing about they're only equal if there is no quorum of the 12 apostles. And then in verse 27, we start seeing how it is that Joseph Smith conceives of a balance of power between these different equal quorums. And every decision made by either Either of these quorums must be by the unanimous voice of the same. That is, every member in each quorum must be agreed to its decisions in order to make their decisions of the same power or validity one with the other. So here's this method of checks and balances coming in, skipping down to verse 32. And in case that any decision of these quorums is made in unrighteousness, it may be brought before a general assembly of the several quorums, which constitute the spiritual authorities of the church. Otherwise, there can be no appeal from their decision. And then in verse 81, it says, There is not any person belonging to the church who is exempt from this council of the church. In other words, this common council. And inasmuch as a president of the high priesthood, i.e. Joseph Smith, the president of the church himself, and inasmuch as a president of the high priesthood shall transgress, he shall be had in remembrance before the common council of the church, who shall be assisted by twelve counselors of the high priesthood. This is Joseph Smith's way of making sure that there is nobody in the church who is over everybody else, but that if any person, including the president of the church or any quorum, goes out of the way and makes decisions in unrighteousness or unholiness, that decision in that quorum on that issue can be brought before all the other quorums assembled in what is called the common council of the church and be corrected. So as you can see, this was a very different system of church government set forth in 1835, section 107, than we have today in the church, which is strictly hierarchical. Now, it is very common today for people who are discussing the authority of the apostles and that they are just under the first presidency 
and then under them is the quorum of the 70, to point to section 107 and say, this shows the authority and the hierarchy of the church, because it talks first about the first presidency, then it talks about the quorum of the 12 apostles, and then it talks about the first quorum of 70. And even though it says they're equal to each other, the argument is usually made nowadays that this means that they are in order of seniority, in order of power, and as Joseph F. Smith said, they are not equal in authority, unless the quorum immediately above them has been disassembled in some way. In other words, the quorum of the Twelve Apostles does not have authority equal to the First Presidency unless the First Presidency has been dismantled, which we understand today means by the death of the President. The pattern that is followed today is that upon the death of the President, the other two counselors who are selected from the quorum of the Twelve Apostles now assume their position in the quorum of the Twelve Apostles in order of seniority. With the death of the president, there are now 14 apostles left, and the apostle, who is the senior apostle, becomes the next president of the church. In fact, at any given time, the president of the church is the most senior apostle. So every time a church president dies, the apostles go into a quorum of 14 now instead of 12, and once again, the apostles reconstitute the first presidency. They recreate what it is that Brigham Young did in 1847 that caused so much controversy and was contrary to the revelations that have been received through Joseph Smith. As I say, it's very common for people today to look to section 107 as an argument for the fact that the Quorum of the Twelve should succeed as leaders of the church once the first presidency was dissolved upon the death of Joseph Smith. The amazing thing is that in 1844, when the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was vying for leadership of the church, none of them cited to Doctrine and Covenants section 107 as authority for their position. It is rather singular, the history of the church notes, that in 1844 no defender of the Quorum of the Twelve Succession gave an adequate unfolding of the relationship of the respective presiding councils of the church based on the published revelation of 1835, in other words, Doctrine and Covenants section 107. There was good reason for why they did not do this, because as D. Michael Quinn says, Everyone in 1844, especially Brigham Young, knew the 1835 revelation did not mean what modern Mormons think it means concerning the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And we've gone through some of those reasons already. We'll go through a few more as we proceed. Going back to President Hinckley's talk from 2005 published in the Enzyme, he notes that in the early days of the church, sometimes lengthy periods of time went between the death of the president of the church and the reorganizing of the first presidency. Here's what he says. There have been lengthy periods when there was no quorum of the first presidency. Following the death of the prophet Joseph, the presiding authority rested in the quorum of the twelve apostles, with Brigham Young as president. This continued for three and a half years. We've already talked about this. There was three and a half years between the death of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young reorganizing the first presidency. Going on with the article, following the death of Brigham Young, the authority again reverted to the Quorum of the Twelve and continued so for three years and two months. In other words, between Brigham Young dying and John Taylor becoming president of the church, reconstituting the first presidency, was three years and two months. That's significant. The reason it's significant is because it was John Taylor who became president. And as you will recall, John Taylor was among the original five apostles 
who in december of eighteen forty seven were not in favor of brigham young reconstituting the first presidency so it may be significant that once brigham young died john taylor now being next in line for presidency doesn't see this as a pressing issue may even not like the idea so much but regardless he waits for three years and two months before the first presidency is reorganized with himself as president of the church in that three year and two month period the church was led by the quorum of the twelve apostles going on following the death of john taylor one year and nine months passed before the first presidency was reorganized well who became president after john taylor that was wilford woodruff and wilford woodruff you may recall was also among those apostles who in december of eighteen forty seven at winter's quarters were opposed or at least not really enthusiastic about the idea of brigham young reconstituting the first presidency in fact he was the one who said that he thought that they should at least have a revelation in order to change the church government and the powers of the quorum of the twelve president hinckley concludes here since that time a reorganization of the presidency has occurred within a few days following the death of the president in every case the senior member of the quorum of the twelve apostles has become president of the church seniority is determined by the date of ordination to the apostleship so that's the end of the quote from that talk what is interesting to me is that every step of this seizure of power by the apostles of the first presidency in the church has been marked by a miracle and that miracle is supposed to signify god's approbation of the steps being taken in other words god is totally on board and signifying it by open miracles that this is what he wants to have happen but in each and every case it also appears that these miracles were not noticed by anybody at the time they're claimed to have happened but were made up long after the fact or at least what we can say from the historical record we can't say they're made up what we can say is nobody said it at the time and they don't end up being said until many many years after the event was supposed to have happened and then retroactively claimed to have happened the first miracle is brigham young being transfigured into joseph smith either he looked like joseph smith or he sounded like joseph smith in august of eighteen forty four when he was presenting his case to the saints as to why the apostles should leave the church the fact is is that there is no contemporaneous record that brigham young looked like joseph smith or sounded like joseph smith or that anything miraculous happened while Brigham Young was speaking to the saints that day. It is only many, many years after the fact that people start recalling that this transfiguration occurred. In fact, it became so popular for Mormons to claim that they were present in Nauvoo to witness the transfiguration of Brigham Young into Joseph Smith that Orson Hyde, who was an apostle in the church, in 1869 claimed, quote, We went among the congregation. He, Brigham, spoke and his words went through me like electricity this is my testimony it was not only the voice of joseph but there were the features the gestures and even the stature of joseph before us in the person of brigham Unquote. orson hyde's testimony is remarkable it is remarkable not only for the miracle it claims to have witnessed but it is also remarkable because he was not even in nauvoo on august eighth instead he arrived in the city five days later. This goes to show how popular it was for Mormons to claim that they were present to see Brigham Young be transfigured into Joseph Smith and verify the miracle that showed that God approved of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles taking control of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it is hard to overlook the fact that it is Orson Hyde, the same apostle who claimed that he was present to see Brigham Young transfigured into Joseph Smith in August of 1844 when he was not even present in Nauvoo to see it, 
who is the same apostle who claimed that three and a half years later in his cabin in winter's quarters in december of eighteen forty seven the voice of god was heard commanding that the first presidency be reorganized and brigham young be president the second miracle that we've talked about is at the December 1847 reorganization of the First Presidency at the meeting of the Apostles when Brigham Young finally persuaded them all in Orson Hyde's cabin at Winter's Quarters after two months of meetings to reorganize the First Presidency. And we've seen that nothing unusual happened there that day, but 13 years later, Brigham Young starts talking about an earthquake and Orson Hyde starts talking about the voice of God coming to them and all of them hearing it. And God said, make Brigham Young the president. I'm totally on board with reorganizing the first presidency. The third miracle that happens is the almost certainly apocryphal story of Jesus appearing to Lorenzo Snow in the Salt Lake City Temple. Now, we probably know this story and we've heard it from time to time, but we know about Lorenzo Snow with his granddaughter in the Salt Lake Temple and they're walking through the temple and it's nighttime and Lorenzo Snow says to his daughter, hey, see that spot right there? That's where Jesus appeared to me and I saw him and he was standing above the ground and it was a wonderful experience. And this is frequently trotted out as probably the most recent apostle that we can go to or the most recent president of the church who says he saw Jesus. Now this is probably largely apocryphal because there's no contemporaneous record of Lorenzo Snow saying it to anybody else at the time, and it doesn't show up until many years later through a third-party source. But the reason that is given for Jesus appearing to Lorenzo Snow is of interest, even though it is probably an apocryphal story, because the reason that is given is that Jesus has something very important to tell Lorenzo Snow. And the thing that Jesus makes a special point of appearing to Lorenzo Snow in the Salt Lake Temple in order to say is that the first presidency should be organized immediately upon the death of President Wilfred Woodruff. Now, when I read that today, I look at that and say, why does Jesus have to appear for a message like that? That seems rather pedestrian. That doesn't seem very special. It doesn't seem like something that requires Jesus to appear in order to give it. But looked at in context of the fact that Brigham Young reorganized the first presidency with a lot of pushback in the quorum. Brigham Young dies in 1877 and over three years goes by before the first presidency is reorganized with John Taylor as the new president. Then when John Taylor dies, a year and nine months goes by before the first presidency is reorganized with Wilfred Woodruff as the president. This may be significant. It will be remembered that both John Taylor and Wilfred Woodruff were among the apostles who were not thrilled with the idea of Brigham Young reorganizing the First Presidency. They were among the five apostles who pushed back against the idea. And it is those apostles who, before they became president of the church, there was an extended period of time where they felt they didn't need to be the president of the church and the First Presidency did not need to be reorganized immediately. At a minimum, it shows they were comfortable with the idea of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles continuing to lead the church. And possibly, it also shows their discomfort with the idea of being president of the church in a newly constituted first presidency. Now we begin to see why it is that organizing the first presidency immediately upon the death of the prior president is something that might provoke some controversy and might require a miracle in order to to sanction it. So, just as a miracle was retroactively invented that Brigham Young transfigured into Joseph Smith in order to sanction the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles leading the church, and just as the voice of God and an earthquake were created after the fact 
and used in order to show divine sanction for the reorganization of the first presidency in 1847 under Brigham Young, even so it appears that the story about Jesus appearing to Lorenzo Snow in the Salt Lake City Temple fits this same pattern to show divine sanction on first presidency being organized immediately upon the death of the former president. Finally, before leaving this part of the podcast, I have to address the story that we hear frequently in the church that the apostles gained the experience to lead the saints west because of their experience supervising the mass exodus from Missouri to Illinois in 1838 and 1839 during the winter of 38-39. This story we hear all the time and it's sort of a post hoc justification for why it is and how it is that the apostles were prepared to lead the church west when that time came. A number of years later. This whole story, though, appears to be a canard. Brigham Young and other apostles had only peripheral involvement in directing the exodus from Missouri. And if I understand my history correctly, there were actually only two apostles of the entire Quorum of Twelve who were active at the time. And those two were Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. You'll recall that there was a mass disaffection from the church in late 1838 during the Missouri Wars. A separate committee of seven was appointed by John Smith, not Joseph Smith, John Smith, to superintend the business of our removal, quote-unquote. Not a single apostle was on this committee or on the expanded removal committee of 11 men. It was this group of non-apostles, not Brigham Young, who directed the Missouri exodus. In fact, Brigham Young was compelled to flee from Missouri to Illinois in February of 1839, while this non-apostolic Committee on Removal continued its work for thousands of Mormons still in Missouri. So not only are miracles created and then retroactively inserted into the historical narrative in order to show divine sanction of these changes in leadership and frankly these power grabs, but also stories about how it is the apostles were prepared to lead the church were created. And this is an example of that kind of story, the idea that the apostles supervised these saints when they were expelled from Missouri, preparing them for supervising the saints going out to Utah, when actually that was not the case at all. The apostles had little to no role in supervising the saints who were fleeing from Missouri to Illinois. Once again, history is written by the winners as an excuse for hanging the losers. It's becoming obvious to me at this point that I have too much information for one podcast. I don't want to overstay my welcome, so I'm going to save everything else that I was going to be saying now for a part two episode, which hopefully will be coming out in the near future. But before I conclude this part of the episode, I need to make it very clear that when I'm talking about Joseph Smith's vision and the revelation in section 107 for the different quorums, there is obviously some way in which the first presidency is in control, and yet all the quorums are equal in power and authority. So even though there's some way in which the first presidency is quote-unquote in charge in some kind of loose way, there is also a very important component of the government where all the quorums are equal in power and authority. Some of that can be explained by the fact that different quorums had different jobs within the church, and so they were in charge of different areas and had different spheres of influence, and yet the quorums themselves were all considered to be equal in power and authority. The reason I want to come back to that is because this is something that shows up in the King Follett Discourse, 
Not only did Joseph Smith see the different quorums in the church as being equal in power and authority, he also saw the same kind of relationship between God and between the eternally existent spirits, one of which is you and one of which is me. He gave the King Follett Discourse only a few months before he died, but in that discourse he talks about the eternal nature of spirits. He says that we have no beginning and we have no end, just the same way as God has no beginning and God has no end. And Joseph Smith, in the recorded notes of his sermon, there were four people present who transcribed notes from the sermon, and those were all amalgamated into what we know today as the King Follett Discourse. But the word that they recorded that Joseph Smith used when talking about the comparison between these eternally existent spirits and God was that they are co-equal with God. That is what the record shows that Joseph Smith said about us and our eternally existent spirits and God, that we are co-equal with God. Now, the LDS Church, ever since that was written down, has distanced itself from that idea. B.H. Roberts, who initially did a lot of work with the King Follett Discourse, wrote a number of footnotes. You can find his footnotes incorporated into the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Those footnotes are there. They were written by B.H. Roberts. And he insists that when Joseph Smith said co-equal, he actually said a very archaic and unusual term called co-evil. Now that's C-O-E-V-A-L, not E-V-I-L. Co-evil, you probably never heard of it. I would never have heard of it in my life, except that I read the footnotes that B.H. Roberts wrote in the King Follow Discourse. But co-evil is an archaic word that means co-extensive with. So in other words, it's basically saying the same idea that when Joseph Smith says that the spirits have existed from all time past to all time future, they are from eternity to eternity. There is no creation about them the same as God. But the actual word that Joseph Smith used was not co-evil, it was co-equal. The spirits are co-equal with God. B.H. Roberts doesn't like that. He wants it to be co-evil with God. Not that we're equal with God, but just that we're co-extensive with God. This is something that the LDS Church continues to do as recently as 1971 in an Enzyme article about the King Follett Discourse when, in a two-part series, it was reproduced. Yes, there was a time when the Church actually talked about the King Follett Discourse, and that time was back in 1971. And there, where they're quoting this part of the Discourse, they say this, this is quoting from the discourse itself, the mind or the intelligence which man possesses is co-equal with God himself. That's from the King Follett Discourse, but they're not satisfied to leave it there. They can't just say it's co-equal with God. They have to put in brackets right after co-equal the word co-eternal. You see, Joseph Smith really can't be trusted. He really doesn't mean co-equal when he says co-equal. He actually means co-eternal because the church is more comfortable with co-eternal. This is what it reads in the Enzyme article. This is May of 1971. The mind or the intelligence which man possesses is co-equal, co-eternal with God himself. The co-eternal being an addition by the editor to make sure that the reader doesn't actually think that Joseph Smith meant co-equal when he said co-equal because Joseph Smith apparently, like the Bible, is true only insofar as he is translated correctly. The point I'm trying to get at is that Joseph Smith's 
vision of the relationship of spirits and God is similar to his vision of the relationship of the different leadership forms in the church. Certainly, God in some meaningful way is superior to the other spirits. He is in charge in some way. He is more intelligent than all of them, going back to the book of Abraham, quote, but in a very important way, the spirits, our spirits, are also co-equal with God himself. And similarly, Joseph Smith seems to have seen the quorums in the same way, that the first presidency, in some meaningful way, is in charge, but also in a very meaningful way, and no less important way. All the quorums, including the quorum of the first presidency, are co-equal. None is above the other. This idea that our intelligences are co-equal with God himself is a fascinating idea and suggests the wide-ranging democracy of Joseph Smith's vision, not only of his church, but also of the cosmos and the beings that reside in it. Well, that's all we have time for today. Next episode, part two of Apostolic Coup d'etat, we will get into the nitty and the gritty of how Brigham Young disassembled the first quorum of the Seventy because he perceived it as a threat, because Brigham Young, yes, understood Section 107 as meaning that the quorums are equal in power and authority, and that even the Quorum of the Seventy, which we would typically think of as being obviously beneath the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Brigham Young saw as a threat to his power and leadership. So it had to be dismantled. We'll go into the details of that. We'll also talk about what happened to the church patriarch, which was considered to be the highest office in the church, at least by Joseph Smith, who did know a thing or two about the church that he established. Then we'll talk about how Brigham Young disassembled and dismantled the Nauvoo Stake High Council, which, believe it or not, according to Section 107, says is equal in authority to the quorum of the Twelve Apostles, as well as to the First Presidency. Nobody in the church ever reads that part. They always stop when they get to the Quorum of the Seventy. You have to actually read on to find out that the High Council in Nauvoo was equal in power and authority to the Quorum of the Seventy, to the Twelve Apostles, and to the First Presidency. So we'll talk about how Brigham Young dismantled that and ultimately put the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as the top dog in a strict up-down hierarchy with no equality of power between the different quorums in the modern Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And finally, we will touch on the sad and tragic fate of Samuel Smith, the brother of Joseph Smith, who died mysteriously and some would say suspiciously in Nauvoo one month after Joseph Smith was murdered. Hopefully that's enough to whet your appetite to listen to part two of this podcast when it comes out sometime in the next few weeks. In the meantime, I'd like to ask my listeners for a special favor. I'm not asking for money. I'm not asking for you to like me on Facebook or write a review. All I'm asking is that if you like what you hear on Radio Free Mormon, that you take the time to send a link to this podcast to someone that you know who might be interested in what's said here as well. We're trying to grow the listenership, and we need your help to do so. Remember, Radio Free Mormon Mania starts here. Won't you help? That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.